0: In my left hand is a complex system of nerves, tissues, blood vessels, and muscles. In my right hand is a Bible. Let's do a show about the Bible. Hello and welcome to Book a Bible Podcast for everybody. I am Josh Way. This is the podcast where science meets the Bible, where we examine the content of the Bible through the lenses of history and literature. Our contention is that real people in real moments of crisis wrote these ancient books for some urgent constructive reason, not just to provide a cryptic holy book for religious people thousands of years in the future. We are presently examining the exile literature of the Bible, Those texts born out of ancient Israel's devastating forced relocation to Babylon in the 5th century BCE. As we've already observed, the writing that came out of this period reflects the shock and desperation of the displaced people of Israel and Judah. It also introduces us to new exotic literary genres, and uh, today we'll encounter more of that. Last time we looked at the book of Esther, the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God at all. It's a tale of political intrigue and Jewish survival in the latter days of the exile when Persia had replaced Babylon as the empire in charge of the world. Esther serves as a fascinating contrast to Daniel, since they're so different and yet so very alike at the same time. Esther is, on the surface, a non-religious story about Israel's ethnic identity among enemies in a foreign land. Esther uses her sexuality and her wit to save her people from annihilation. Daniel, on the other hand, is a deeply religious book full of angels and visions and prophecies. But then again, both are ultimately stories of hope for the same people suffering through the same ordeal. And of course, this is a fine opportunity to drive home one of our recurrent points here on book, that in the ancient Semitic world which produced the Bible, there is really no gap in between what we would call politics and what we would call religion. They are the same thing. Esther isn't really godless, as we noted in that podcast, and today we'll see that just because the message of Daniel is wrapped up in a bizarre religious package doesn't make it any less practical or political. That said, let's begin our look at the text. Daniel's a very dynamic and multidimensional text. It contains several tales about Daniel and his Jewish companions in the courts of Babylon and later Persia. It also contains apocalyptic dreams and visions which foretell the end of exile and the restoration of Israel and Judah. The tales in the beginning of the book are among the most beloved and familiar Bible stories. Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace, Daniel himself in the lion's den, and the handwriting on the wall. The apocalyptic material is not as well known today, but it is actually foundational for the rest of biblical literature. Without Daniel's prophecies, much of the New Testament, including many words of Jesus, would make little to no sense. Note also that Daniel is one of the very few Bible texts which were written in Aramaic, the international language from and following the time of the Persian Empire. Now, here's how the book begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashvanaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, And competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans—that's the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief eunuch gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. In an introduction which conforms well to our historical understanding of the exile, Daniel and his friends are carried off from Judah to Babylon, where they are put to work in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. We know from Daniel and elsewhere that Babylon's strategy of conquest over the Near Eastern world involved forcibly recruiting and exploiting the best and brightest of a conquered people, craftsmen, artists, thinkers, and writers were identified and drafted into the king's administration. Daniel and his buddies are the best and brightest of their generation, and so they are given Babylonian educations and Babylonian names. The rest of chapter 1 highlights the complicated relationship between the Jewish exiles and their captors. The young Hebrews excel at their studies and impress their Babylonian hosts. Yet they resolutely defy their masters when asked to participate in activities which conflict with their Jewish identity. The first of these conflicts involves food. Daniel and his friends refused to eat the king's food, opting instead to eat vegetables and water. Now it's unclear in the text exactly what about the Babylonian food is objectionable, but it certainly has something to do with Israel's many laws concerning clean and unclean foods or prohibitions against eating any animal that had been sacrificed to a foreign god. There's no serious consequence for this act of defiance, but it does establish a tension which will only grow louder as we move forward. For now, Daniel succeeds, is promoted, and, quote, has understanding in visions and dreams. We are reminded, most certainly with the intention of the author, of Joseph in Egypt thousands of years earlier. In chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a bad dream. It troubles his spirit, and he demands that his magicians and wise men interpret it. And just to make certain that the interpretation is on the up and up, the interpreter must also reveal the dream. In fact, failure to correctly reveal the king's dream will result in immediate dismemberment. When no one can meet the king's demand, an enraged Nebuchadnezzar orders that every wise man in Babylon, and that includes Daniel and his friends, be destroyed. Back in his quarters, Daniel prays a prayer to the God of heaven, which is a common way in the Hebrew Bible of referring to Israel's God in places outside the borders of Israel. And before the king's officials can carry out the order, the dream is revealed to Daniel who offers his interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, a pelvis of bronze, and legs of iron and clay. A huge uncut stone smashed into the statue, reducing every element to dust, at which point the stone became a huge mountain which, quote, filled the entire earth. The interpretation according to Daniel. The head of gold is Babylon, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. After it will come another kingdom, not as strong, and another even less strong, and finally a fourth, which will be the weakest, a divided kingdom made of iron and clay. In the time of the fourth kingdom, Israel's God will establish his own kingdom, which will surpass all the kingdoms of the earth and which will, quote, stand forever. Daniel gets promoted for this once again. Out of many possible interpretations of the biblical presentation of Daniel's interpretation of the dream, one has a nice and tidy historical foothold. After Babylon, of course, there will be three more major empires which will rule over the Near Eastern world. Next will be the medo Persian Empire within Daniel's lifetime, followed by Greece and then Rome. Not only is this interpretation historically tenable, it seems to have the support of the New Testament writers as well, with special attention to the kingdom of God motif. We'll look at that when we get there. But still, we should remain open-minded and be slow to hitch our wagon to any easy-peasy historical fulfillment of Bible prophecy. For the author's purposes here in Daniel, the dream interpretation accomplishes two things. It flatters Nebuchadnezzar by assuring him that his kingdom is the greatest of all these, while simultaneously offering hope to the conquered peoples that God will eventually deal with these kingdoms. Earthly power passes from throne to throne, but Israel's God, they believe, is the source of all power, and he will eventually take his world back from these emperors. This is the underlying message of everything that's to come in Daniel, and in the whole Bible for that matter. In chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar erects a golden statue of himself. A little bit on the nose, but what are you going to do? The king decrees that everyone in the land should bow down and worship his image. And when Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to do so, they are dragged before Nebuchadnezzar and sentenced to be thrown alive into a large furnace. They politely but resolutely accept their sentence, saying this in verse 16. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The king's henchmen throw the young Jews into the furnace, but instead of burning up, they are seen, quote, walking around in the midst of the fire, with a mysterious fourth figure who looks like a, quote, son of the gods, probably a Babylonian way of saying an angel. Nebuchadnezzar is impressed, so he gives the young men promotions and threatens death to anyone who speaks against them or Israel's God. One gets the sense that Nebuchadnezzar didn't take a bathroom break without decreeing that someone be potentially torn limb from limb. Chapter 4 is notable for a sudden change in the story's point of view. This is the only chapter in the book written as a personal, first-person decree from Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 6, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. This time he goes right to Daniel and spills the beans on his scary dream. He saw a lush and beautiful tree reaching for the heavens with branches full of birds and fruit to feed the beasts of the earth. But an angel descended from the sky and ordered the tree to be cut down, its leaves and fruit scattered, and its stump, quote, bound to the earth with iron and bronze. The stump was given the mind of a beast for seven seasons. Now, knowing the interpretation to be far less flattering than the previous dream, Daniel is hesitant, but the king insists. So Daniel explains that the tree is Nebuchadnezzar himself, with his power and dominion over so much of the earth. But heaven has decreed that the great emperor be chopped down, humiliated, made low, and reduced to the stature of an animal. A year later, this very fate befalls the king. As he stands on the roof of his palace regarding the vast reaches of his kingdom, this happens, verse 33. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the sky, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. After a time, Nebuchadnezzar regains his, quote, reason and splendor. But a point has been made. The glory enjoyed by emperors is fleeting and can be taken away at a moment's notice by one in a higher place of authority. A warning to the oppressor, but perhaps more important, a word of hope to the oppressed. Daniel chapter 5 features a new king, Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon. He only gets this one brief story in the Bible, but it's a doozy. As the king parties with thousands of his lords and concubines, he runs out of glassware and orders that the holy vessels stolen from the temple in Jerusalem be brought out of the treasury. As the party rages on, a human hand appears and writes Aramaic words on the wall of the chamber, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. The words roughly translate as numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. No one can interpret what this sequence of words might mean until, you guessed it, Daniel is on the scene. He explains. Verse 26. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The message is Babylon is finished. The next empire will be here soon to divvy up what's left of your kingdom. The text tells us that Belshazzar died that very night and King Darius the Mede inherited his kingdom. Daniel retains his high position in the new Meadow Persian Empire until jealous colleagues plot against him. Knowing that Daniel prays daily to the God of Israel toward Jerusalem from an open window... They provoke Darius to issue a decree that no one should petition any god or king but him in all the land, and anyone who fails to keep the ordinance should be thrown into a den of lions. The king loves the idea, and Daniel is swiftly dragged before him as a traitor. Now Darius, who has apparently grown fond of Daniel, reluctantly orders that the boy be thrown into the lion's den. Since this is one of the most famous Bible stories of all time, you probably know that Daniel survives his time in the pit and is promoted once again. He enjoys continued success until the reign of the Persian king Cyrus, who will become a very significant player in Israel's exile drama. In chapter 7, Daniel's extraordinary apocalyptic visions begin, and the tone of the book changes somewhat. In fact, many scholars believe that the second six chapters of Daniel represent a separate collection of writings from a different period, not unlike what we observed in the book of Isaiah. While the first half of the book features tales of adventure and survival with Daniel and his friends in the Babylonian and Persian courts, the second half appears to have been written later, most likely in the second century during the reign of the Greeks and one ruthless tyrant in particular. More on that in a minute. Here's the vision from chapter seven probably the central text of the book of Daniel. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong." It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this little horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking arrogantly." This is perhaps the first full-blown apocalyptic vision in the Bible, following the hints and glimpses in books like Isaiah and Ezekiel. We've spoken about apocalyptic a few times before, but some observations bear repeating. First and foremost, and this should be fairly obvious, but the strange creatures and events in apocalyptic texts should not be, and in all reality cannot be, taken as literal things existing in time and space. These are metaphors and symbols. Think of apocalyptic visions as the political cartoons of the ancient world, particularly the Babylonian and Persian corners of the ancient world. These are impossible hyperboles and caricatures meant to encapsulate and insinuate realities which could not be described using mundane language. Another important point of clarification when dealing with apocalyptic literature, and Bible prophecy in general for that matter, is that it is not always or necessarily about the future, that is, our future. While recent generations of mainly Christian interpreters have insisted that anything prophetic or visionary in the Bible must be talking about the end of the world, which is always just around the corner from us, it's much more fruitful and appropriate to consider the impact of these visions within the generations which produced them so long ago. Keep that in mind as we read on. Daniel sees a vision of four monsters climbing out of the sea. The sea, we remember, is identified in the ancient world with chaos and evil. Whatever these creatures are, there's something primal and wicked about them. They're like the snake in the garden story, some kind of force within creation which defies and threatens its order. One looks very much like a cherub, a creature from Akkadian mythology which looks like a lion with eagle's wings. A second monster resembles a bear and runs amuck eating people. The third is like a four-headed leopard with wings which is given dominion to wreak havoc on the earth, and the terrifying fourth monster almost defies description. It isn't compared to any animal, it's just a beast with iron teeth and ten horns on its head. When some of the horns are plucked out, a smaller one appears with a little face on it which proceeds to speak arrogantly. There is a complex system of tropes and symbolism at work in apocalyptic texts, and to be honest, we do not have a handle on all of it. Some things become obvious, though. Different animals represent different sorts of powers and qualities. Horns represent kingly dominion, and certain numbers bear certain meanings. Four seems to indicate totality. Seven, the number of completeness. Ten represents consolidated or formidable power, etc. We need not struggle to decipher every last clue, however, as an angel will tell Daniel the meaning of the vision later in the chapter. In one sense, the vision is very similar to Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream, only instead of four forthcoming empires, the monsters are said to represent four kings. The first three do their damage but are quickly dispatched, while the strange fourth king represents a unique and severe threat. Later in the chapter, we learn that each horn on this beast's head actually represents an individual king, and the small 11th horn with the big mouth is a greater king, one who will make war against God's people, and, quote, sees fit to change the times and the law. The climax of this vision sees the Ancient of Days, no doubt Israel's God himself, dealing with all four of the monsters. But he doesn't do it personally. He appoints a servant, one, quote, like a son of man a Hebrew way of saying a mortal human, whom he sends down to earth on a cloud to vanquish the fourth beast and establish the new everlasting kingdom, the one we saw in the Nebuchadnezzar dream. This vision will become vital to our reading of the New Testament as it forms the central element of Jesus' own self-identity. But here in the Hebrew Bible, we note the impact of its message on Israel in the exile and beyond. Historically, there's good reason to identify the small horn of the fourth beast with the Greek tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Of all the pagan kings to torture and oppress and annoy Israel and Judah, he was surely the most vindictive and ruthless. While Babylon and Persia each allowed some semblance of Jewish identity to survive conquest, Antiochus actively sought to stamp it out. He profaned the temple, made it impossible for Jews back in their homeland by decree of the Persian king Cyrus, spoiler alert, to practice the covenant law. He even forced Jewish martyrs to eat pork as they died. And so two prominent schools of interpretation have emerged regarding Daniel 7. An historical view, which sees it as a word of hope and perseverance for Jews suffering under Antiochus Epiphanes 4 and then a dispensational Christian view, which prefers to read any text like this as a prophecy about the end of the world and the so-called Antichrist. Thankfully, this show is already running long, and we have neither the time nor inclination on book to solve such matters. Suffice to say, the big takeaways from Daniel 7 are the mysterious Son of Man figure and the ultimate and effortless victory of God over the oppressive regimes of the earth. Now, speaking of running low on time, let's take an abbreviated look at the rest of the book's contents. Chapter 8 is another vision, this time of a ram being trampled by a goat. The angel, now identified as Gabriel, tells Daniel that this is the king of Persia being trampled by the king of Greece, who will desecrate and profane the temple before being defeated himself. Consider the implications, by the way, of this very specific interpretation to our reading of chapter 7. The king of Greece here is actually explicitly mentioned. Though it's also worth noting that Daniel ends this chapter utterly confused, unable to comprehend what he has just seen, and he's told by the angel that it is for another time. Daniel 9 finds Daniel in the court of Darius the Mede reading the writings of Jeremiah, where he finds a prophecy that the exile will end after 70 years. That's Jeremiah 25 11. Daniel prays a long and reverent prayer to Israel's God, asking if these 70 years shouldn't have maybe expired by now. The angel Gabriel returns with good news and bad news. The exile will indeed end, but after seven times 70 years or 490 years. As historical interpreters, we should be careful before we whip out our calculators and get to work. We need to remember the significance of these numbers, especially in terms of years and eras. For Israel, seven is the number associated with God and his own rhythm. He rested on the seventh day of creation, and so his people take a Sabbath on the seventh day. In that same vein, every seventh year in Israel was to be a jubilee year, in which society was reset, debts forgiven, and slaves freed. Israel will come out of their exile, but only after a jubilee of jubilees, meaning in God's own good perfect time. In chapters 10, 11, and 12, Daniel is working for Cyrus, the Persian king who will sign that order to allow the Jews to return home. Daniel sees a series of troubling visions narrated for him by another angel named Michael, which depict in more detail the struggles and conflicts between the kings of the earth from Daniel's present until, quote, the end. Again, some choose to interpret that phrase as a reference to the end of the space-time world, while others see it as a reference to the end of the age, when the exile will be ended and God will reestablish his kingdom as promised. The final vision of Daniel sees a resurrection of, quote, many of the dead, both Israelites and their pagan oppressors, the former to the, quote, life of the coming age, and the latter to, quote, shame and contempt. Like everything else in the book, this is about the ultimate vindication of Israel for the ordeal that they are presently suffering. And that is the book of Daniel. Some say he's a character invented as a representative of faithful Jews throughout the various stages of the exile. Others insist that he was an especially blessed prophet, called to bring urgent words of hope to his suffering people in bondage. Either way, the dreams and visions of Daniel are biblical game changers in many respects, and will undergird our reading of the New Testament Gospels and the Book of Revelation, another book which offers us a variety of interpretive possibilities. But that's down the road. For now, this has been Book, a Bible podcast for everyone, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, you can email me at book at joshway.com. You can also leave me a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to answer it right here on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's it for me, Bible pals. I'll catch you next time.